and welcome to Simple Sarah's Horror Menagerie. I'm your host, Sarah Sin, tackling horror movies, peeling back the layers, and taking a deeper dive into them. Again, on the show, I don't just discuss my love of horror movies. I like to bring in the aspect and perspective of horror in history, how horror movies tend to reflect society's fears. And since I am a psychology major, I like to bring this aspect and perspective in as well and see how the horror movie I'm focusing on reflects psychology and mental health in any way. So October is coming to an end, which means Halloween is almost here, my favorite holiday. Again, Hamera is going to be Sam from Trick or Treat, and she decided I'm going to be Freddy Krueger. So we're pretty excited. It's coming up on Monday. I already have all my plans set out. I'm going to get out of work early, which is really awesome because um, I had to change shifts with one of my coworkers, but she was nice enough to do this for me. So we're really excited for Halloween. Also, this week was me and Hamera's birthday. Hamera turned seven this week, and sadly, I turned 40. So still having a hard time with it, still not happy with it. Um, hopefully, within the next year, I will get better. But for right now, I just, I don't know, turning 40 has just been really hard on me. It's just been very depressing. I just didn't think, I don't know, I thought I'd be in a different stage of life when I turned 40. I feel like I haven't achieved or done anything that I should have done by the time I'm 40. So I think for me, that's what's really hard is that I turned 40 and I'm nowhere near where I thought I would be in my life. So that's kind of where a lot of my stress is coming from and some of my depression because, I don't know, just being 40 is really hard. And on top of that, I feel like just work, again, has been very stressful and overwhelming. Um, I love my job. It's not the job itself. It's just dealing with parents again. It's like, and it's not really parents. It's like one parent right now is just making it to the point, like, I don't even want to be at my job, not my job, but like, I don't even want to be in my room anymore. And I love being an infant teacher. It's actually one of my favorite rooms to be in. But it's just like anything we do is never good enough for this parent. Like every time they ask us to do something, we are kind enough to do it. And then it's like they find something else to complain about. And then we try to help with change. And then it's like they find something else to complain about. It's like they were sick of hearing that their child was difficult. I'm sorry, but that's not on me. Like you have a tough child, that's okay. But they were sick of hearing it every single day. So we decided to have a baseline. We're like, okay, this is where your child's at every day. We'll tell you that she had a typical day, a good day or a tough day. So that was, okay, we can do that. I understand you don't want to hear your kid is difficult every single day. That's not easy because uh, I know what that's like because I was kind of told that all summer long from Hamera's camp teachers. Anyways, then it was like, well, now I want to know something they did all day. So a highlight, something, one thing that they really loved and enjoyed for the day. So we said, okay, we'll start doing that for all the kids and sending them out. Like, you know, so-and-so really enjoyed doing this. So-and-so enjoyed doing that. And then it was, well, is that all she's doing? Like, I don't even, you know, that's all she did today was enjoy a stroller ride. And I'm like, you asked us to do this. So we're doing it now. It's like, you want a play-by-play of what she's doing every single day. That's not going to happen. We don't have that kind of time. Yes. We'll be more mindful about adding in like when we do our music and our stroller rides and our outdoor times and when we read books that we can do. And we started doing that. And then it turned into some, you know, there's something else now that the parents complaining about. And it's just like, I hate going to work and walking on eggshells every single day, 
And right now it's all because of one parent. And it's just so frustrating because it's like every single time we do what is asked of us from this parent, they have to find something else to complain about. And now it's like, they're mad because they don't think we talk to the babies all day. It's like, you're not in my room for nine hours straight with me. You don't know what we do all day because you're not there. But just because you come in and maybe we're not face-to-face with your child talking to them doesn't mean we're not communicating with your child. So it's just, work has been stressful. I did tell my boss, I said, look, I can't walk on eggshells every day because of one parent. It is very frustrating for me. You know, I'm really sick of, (laughs) you know, every single time we do something to accommodate them, they have to find something else to complain about. And I'm like, and I can't do it anymore. So like, I don't know what to do anymore. So we're going to hopefully figure something out because it's just so stressful. And like, I really hate going to work and then leaving crying because this one parent really just makes everything harder on me and my workmates. So anyways, that's pretty much what's been going on with me. That's why I've been having a hard time on top of turning 40. So anyways, with all that said, Let's move on to the last movie for the theme of Oh, McDonald had a farm, D-E-A-D, dead. Sorry, I have a terrible singing voice. With 2007's The Messengers. Directed by the Pang Brothers. Starring Kristen Stewart as Jess. Dylan McDermott as Roy. Penelope Ann Miller as Denise. John Corbett as John Burwell. Dustin Milligan as Bobby. And William B. Davis as Colby Price. So for horror in history, this definitely reflects a lot on like family, I would say family structure in the sense that this is a family that's trying to move on from a trauma that they experienced together um, that affected the whole family by moving. They think moving is going to somehow solve this problem. It also reflects on, in my opinion, abuse uh, and assault, whether sexual or physical, and how people sometimes don't believe the victim. They tend to choose not to believe the victim. Um, Again, I'll get more in depth about this. I think it's definitely more of like a symbolic part of the movie. And then it definitely reflects on one of my favorite things to like look into, which is how people can be monsters themselves. It's not always the supernatural or the creatures that you need to fear. It's human beings. So for psychology and mental health, we got depression, guilt, trauma, adolescent stage of life, um, identity versus role confusion. Abuse, innocence, a broken family, a family trying to rebuild themselves, trust issues, being withdrawn, and introversion, like being introverted. So what is this movie about? The Solomon family moves from Chicago to North Dakota, hoping to rebuild their lives and become a close family again, following the infant son's hospitalization due to the reckless acts of their teenage daughter, Jess. But as they unpack boxes and make the old farmhouse their new home, Unexplainable things start to occur, starting with the sun and moving on to Jess, supernatural and paranormal things. No one knows what happened to the previous family that lived there, but could these occurrences be connected? Is there something supernatural at play here or something more sinister at work here? So moving on to the subgenre. Even though like the opening scene to this movie definitely plays out like a slasher flick, this movie is anything but that. I would put this movie under the supernatural horror subgenre. This movie is about spirits that haunt a house, interact with the owners, make themselves like known, and are trying to send a message. We see the spirits throughout the movie, first through the eyes of the toddler, and then moving down, slowly revealing themselves to other family members. So I'm going to go over the definition of supernatural horror. Supernatural horror. 
The films in this subgenre feature the paranormal and the supernatural, typically in the form of ghosts, entities, and spirits. These supernatural beings may be haunting a house or a town attached to a person, object, or building. Either way, they usually pose a threat. In this subgenre, the spirits are usually out for revenge, have unfinished business, or may be trying to warn someone of impending danger, and the souls will not rest until they have completed what they set out to do. So the first thing I'd like to go over is like a couple of the symbolism and metaphors within the movie. Again, there's a lot more going on within this movie than what's on the surface. And like every movie I watch, I would love to talk about all of it. But due to time and trying to kind of balance all the other aspects of my life, I'm just going to go over a couple of like the metaphors and symbolism for now. This is a movie that gets like a lot of slack and a, and a lot of people like didn't seem to enjoy it. But I feel that this movie is very underrated. And as I'm always saying, once you peel back the layers, you will find more within the movie to enjoy. And I feel, I really feel this way about this movie. I feel that it deserves more love for many reasons, really. But one thing I really do like about this movie is that it touches on serious issues, again, bringing it to the attention of the viewer. Again, it is through symbolism and metaphors, but it's the whole idea that people are just looking on the surface of the movie and they're really not looking at what's going on beneath. And I think once you really see what's going on beneath the surface of this movie, I think more people would really enjoy it. So like one aspect of the movie that is very noticeable, like within like the beginning of the movie is the fact that crows play a huge role within this movie. They are seen throughout the movie, even having a scene or a couple of scenes actually that very much feel like an homage to Alfred Hitchcock, um, his movie, The Birds. There's a scene. And again, I don't remember when it happened, um, like in the movie, but there's a bunch of crows and they're sitting on the farmhouse staring down at, I believe, Jess. And it reminded me of the schoolyard scene in The Birds when all the crows are just sitting on the jungle gym. And then later on, there's another scene where a bunch of crows, and I mean hundreds of crows, like this wasn't just a murder of crows, this was a massacre of crows swarming above the sunflower field where this character John is working. And then they all start to swoop in and attack him, pecking at him and, you know, just like going to town on him. And again, this reminded me of the attack scene on the school kids in the movie The Birds when they begin to run and all the crows start to attack them. So for me, this is actually another aspect of the movie I really enjoyed because I felt like it was definitely an homage to Hitchcock and his movie, The Birds, is actually one of my favorite movies of his. But beside the fact that I definitely think the crows being a huge part of this movie is on one, um, like in one, on one hand is an homage to Hitchcock. It's also because crows themselves are very symbolic in their own right. And most of these... Sorry, so most of these that I'm going to go over, like their symbolism, I got online um, from Miller's Guide, Crystal Clear Intuition, and Uniguide. So crows are very symbolic of a lot of different things. They are symbols of death, the mediators between life and death, and are spiritual messengers. And this is definitely what they are in this movie. They are definitely trying to send a message to the people, the Solomon family, like telling them to pay close attention to their surroundings and what's going on. Crows and actually the call of a crow, like when you hear them call, are also warning signs or um, warning calls of bad things to come and of impending danger. This is also what our crows are trying to do. They're trying to warn this family of impending doom, which is the character of John, which again, I'll get a little more in depth about later. But John has a secret 
and is not a very good person. And the crows are trying to warn the Solomon family that bad things will happen if they let John into their lives. And the crows end up being right. So again, like I said, on the one hand, I do like that some of the scenes definitely mimic Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. And I definitely feel like it's in there purposely, like as an homage to Hitchcock. But I also like the idea that crows are very symbolic as they're trying to warn this family of impending danger of the character of John. So um, that's just one thing I did notice about this movie was that the crows play a big part because they're very symbolic of like impending doom that's about to happen and telling these people when they caught them like to pay close attention, something bad is going to happen. Next, I think this movie can be seen as a metaphor for abuse, um, whether sexual or physical. And how at times the people closest to you choose not to believe you when you try to tell them of the trauma you suffered at the hands of the abuser. The ghosts themselves, I feel, can be seen as metaphors for Jess's trauma. So I'm going to go over a few scenes so uh, and then kind of try to explain along the way so hopefully this starts to make um, more sense. At one point, Jess is left home um, alone to care for her I don't even know how old he is. I want to say around the age of two, but her baby brother, Ben, and she's making dinner. She hears a noise upstairs. When she goes to check it out, like the ghosts start to attack. They bend the railing of the stairs and the lights begin to flicker. And then Ben chases a toy tractor to the basement door. And when Jess goes to the door to find Ben, she realizes that he's actually behind her because she turns around. There's Ben. She's like, okay. And then this is when a bunch of ghost-like hands, like, grab her. They try to drag her down into the basement. They're, like, violently grabbing at her. And I feel like this is the scene when that's um, a metaphor for the abuse, like, when the abuse occurs. So the fact that the um, hands are, like, violently grabbing at her and, like, pulling at her is what I'm trying to say is kind of being a metaphor for the abuse Jess is, um, that's occurring to Jess at the moment. And then Jess grabs Ben. And, like, all these objects in the house begin being thrown violently around the house. Like, furniture is violently being moved around the house. Again, like, this whole action is symbolic or is a metaphor. And then we see John. He's up at the window. And I believe that he's supposed to be um, the abuser. And he kind of helps Ben and Jess out the window. And then when Jess turns around, everything in the house is back to normal. Like, like nothing had ever happened. Then the police show up and say that they didn't find anyone in the house and her parents don't believe her. So Jess's parents don't believe her when she tells them what actually happened, that she was, you know, that this violent act happened to her. So in the movie, yes, it's ghosts violently attacking her, but I think it's supposed to be a metaphor for the trauma that just occurred to her. So I, I hope that makes sense. So like I said, her parents don't believe her. This violent act happened to her by the person that her parents actually hired. You know, her parents choose not to believe her. They think she's making it all up. Jess even says to her dad, 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 I'm really scared. Can, can we just go home? To which her dad replies, this is home. Again, I think it's very symbolic of abuse, someone suffering a trauma and having no one believe them. Then like the next day, Jess even has a conversation with John, almost like she's trying to confront her abuser, understand why he traumatized her, why he won't say anything, um, why is he denying what happened. So let me go over the scene. Jess, why did you tell my parents you didn't see anything last night? 
John. Well, because I didn't. I mean, look, I know you were scared, and I know that people, even your parents sometimes, they don't know how to listen. Jess, especially my parents. John, they got pressures you can't even begin to understand. Are you sure you saw something up there? Jess, I saw it. It was real. John, maybe you just got a lot on your mind. So for me, this conversation sounds like John is trying to deny what he did. Again, I feel like this movie can be seen as a metaphor for abuse. John is the abuser. Jess is the victim. And that he's trying to convince her it didn't happen, that she's making it up. He's trying to convince her this never happened and that it's all in her head kind of idea. The last thing I'm going to go over kind of represents the idea of John, instead of trying to convince Jess that nothing happened, is basically trying to save his own ass by making sure she didn't tell her parents about what actually happened. You know, like he wants to make sure like instead of being like, okay, this is all in your head. This never happened. Instead, he's like trying to be like, well, I, you know, you better not have told your parents about what happened. So John, are you okay? Jess, I saw something again today. It was a girl. She, she was in the cellar. Something, something happened to her. She was trying to get away from something. John, get away from what? Jess, I don't know, but she was, she looked just scared to death. John, have you told your folks about this? Jess, I mean, my parents already think I'm nuts. So again, in the scene, you know, not only is John trying to make sure that Jess didn't tell her parents, like making sure like, hey, like, okay, this did happen, but you don't need to tell your parents about it. Um, you know, making sure the victim doesn't say anything. Jess has already figured out in her mind that this has actually happened before, that she's not the only victim at the hands of John. Again, metaphorically speaking, I think this scene represents the idea that John is saying he, he has stopped denying what had happened. Now he's trying to convince Jess not to tell her parents, but Jess has already realized that she's not the first victim at the hands of John. So... <laughs> Sorry, I tend to ramble on, and in all honesty, I'm having a really tough time just trying to do this episode. I don't know why. It's just like, I feel like, <laughs> I'm sorry. So to try to sum this up, on the surface, again, we have a ghost story, and we as the viewer are trying to piece together what exactly is going on. But underneath, I feel this movie can be seen as a metaphor for abuse, someone who has experienced a severe trauma some kind of abuse assault, again, whether physical or sexual. We have the ghosts representing the action that happened. So they represent the abuse, the assault. John is the abuser and Jess is the victim. And John tries to convince her nothing happened and then tries to cover his tracks, making sure Jess didn't tell her parents about what happened. Jess realizes she's not the first victim and she is desperately trying to convince people, especially her parents, of the trauma she endured. They choose not to believe her, and they think she's making this all up. So her parents don't believe her. They don't believe what happened. Again, ghosts on the surface, abuse underneath. Once you peel back the layers, Jess is desperately trying to get her parents to believe her that this happened to her, but they think she's making this all up, which sadly, you know, is symbolic of what happens to many abuse victims when they kind of hold on to the trauma for a long time to not only be believed when they finally come forward. So I hope this all makes sense. Again, I feel like this movie can be seen as a metaphor 
for abuse. You know, Jess is the one who has been traumatized. John is the one who has harmed her. The ghosts are symbolic and the metaphor for the act that actually occurred. And the whole time, you know, no one believes Jess, not even her parents. Um, and she's desperately trying to convince someone that this happened to her. Yes, this happened to me. Why won't you believe me? And again, I think this is symbolic of, again, what I said sadly happens to a lot of victims when they finally come forward. They finally have the courage to come forward only to not be believed by people. So again, I, I hope that all makes sense. Next, I'd like to talk about kind of like the human aspect of this movie. Like, I don't know if I want to say humanity, if that's the right word. It's the idea that this movie has very like human aspects, what it means to be human, human development, and so on. We have a clear view of the adolescent stage of life, the whole identity versus role confusion, the idea that teens tend to be reckless, impulsive, like to take risks, feel invincible, and that there are consequences to this mindset and to these actions. We also have the idea that, and again, an idea I love talking about, who's the real monster? Is it man or beast? Is it man or the paranormal? Is it the creature or the ghost? Or is it humans we should fear? So first, I'd like to talk about the adolescent aspect of this movie with, again, our character Jess, who is our teenager. So we learn right off the bat that Jess is going through something and that she has lost her parents' trust, and that something happened to create tension between Jess and her parents. It is known that the family did move to the farmhouse to kind of get away from the troubles of Chicago. So, like, they're kind of, they're moving because they want to rebuild their life, but in actuality, it's almost like they're running away from their problems. So I'm going to go over a few scenes and then, again, try to explain more. You know, a couple of the scenes show that the parents don't trust Jess, and then the last scene is actually the explanation why, and then you start to understand and piece things together. So like I said, the family moves to North Dakota to this farmhouse. It has a lot of land. They're going to become um, sunflower seed farmers. Again, they came from Chicago because of something that happened involving Jess and her baby brother, Ben. And we see Denise, who's the mother, cleaning up around, I, I think it's the dining room, I'm pretty sure it's the dining room, and Jess walks in and grabs the keys to the car, which are on the table. Denise, what are you doing? Jess, going to town. Denise, I don't think so, Jess. Give me the keys. And then Roy, who's the father, walks in and Jess hands her dad the keys. Roy, thanks, Jess. You ready to go? Jess, what's up with that? Denise, it was me, not her. I thought she was taking the car. So in this scene, we realize that Jess actually wasn't trying to take the keys to like take off with the car. She was grabbing them for her father. And Denise automatically assumes that Jess is trying to take the car. You know, she doesn't even really ask her or really give her a chance to explain herself. She just doesn't trust Jess. Like she just assumes that she's taking the car when she's not supposed to. You know, even though she was just doing a favor for her dad, her dad probably said, hey, Jess, go grab the keys. She goes to grab the keys for her dad. And her mom automatically assumes that she's just going to take the car when she's not supposed to. So we see that Jess has done something bad enough that it's obvious with her mother that her mother hasn't been able, I want to say like hasn't been able to forgive her. Like we know she doesn't trust Jess, but you kind of get the feeling that she hasn't forgiven Jess for what has happened. Next is a scene and it's in the car when the family is driving home from the hospital. So Jess was actually attacked by one of the spirits in the barn where she was cut on her neck a few times. The doctor says they're superficial cuts, 
and want to know, like they ask the parents if there's any reason why Jess would want to harm herself. And this is them driving home. Jess, dad, we need to leave the house now before anything else happens. Dad, dad, I'm really scared. Roy, have you forgotten how hard it was the last couple of years? Me out of work? Ben's hospital bills? We went through every dime your mother and I managed to save. 20 years. 20 years of savings gone in two years. We have everything riding on this harvest, Jess. Everything. Only a couple of days away. Please. Jess. Mom, these things attacked me. Roy. Enough. The doctor said your cuts looked self-inflicted. That's what he said. That you did this. Jess. You actually think that I would do this to myself? Why won't you believe me? Denise. How can we, Jess? Huh? Tell me. I mean, we thought you put this all behind you. Okay, so before I go a little more in depth about, like, how they don't trust her and how they can't forgive her, what actually bothers me about this scene is that the parents, so the parents actually think Jess cut herself when in actuality the ghost attacked her, but they believe that Jess hurt herself, self-harm, and they attack her with hostility and anger. So if Jess did purposely hurt herself, like, that, and this is what they believe, approaching her with anger and making it all about them the parents are literally making this you know what happened to her all about them is not the answer and isn't how this situation should be handled like if they think you know the cuts were self-inflicted that Jess actually wanted to hurt herself Jess needs compassion from these people who should be supportive of her you know her parents should be coming to her with compassion but her parents are like so mad at her about what she did and the fact that they can't move past it and forgive her. They make her self-harm about them and attack her and, like I said, approach her with anger. So that's kind of like what bothers me about this scene is that, you know, they believe she hurt herself. And instead of like asking why or being like, are you OK? How can we help you? They are so angry with her about what happened and can't forgive her and can't move past it that they basically attack her for hurting herself and make it all about them. So that is one thing about the scene that bothers me because it's not how the situation should have been handled. So anyways, I hope that makes sense. So so again, in this scene, we see that her parents don't believe her. They can't trust her. Something happened and they can't forgive her for it. So um then we move on and we find out the story of um, what actually happened and like why her parents don't trust her nor believe her. So Jess is riding with Bobby, who's a boy she had met earlier in the movie, and she's telling him like what's happening um, about the ghost. And she's like, please, I need someone to believe me. And then she tells him like why her parents don't believe her. Bobby, have you talked to your parents? Jess, well, I've tried, but they won't listen to me. Bobby, why? Jess, back in Chicago, I messed up. Like six months ago, my mom was picking up my dad from the airport and his flight was late. So she called to see if I could pick up my little brother from the babysitter's house. And I should have told her that I had been drinking with my friends, but I mean, it wasn't like I was wasted or anything. And I thought I was okay to drive, but I got in a wreck and Ben had to go to the hospital and he hasn't talked since then. I mean, they just, they haven't, they haven't let it go yet. Bobby. Everybody makes mistakes, Jess. So now we know what happened. Um, why the parents don't trust her, why they won't believe her, and why they haven't forgiven her. So 
Again, I'm not saying what Jess did was okay. She could have killed her little brother or herself. What she did was wrong, you know. But you also have to understand that she was she's a teenager. She's an adolescent. She's in the adolescent stage of life, which is a very difficult stage within the human development. It's obvious that she didn't feel safe nor trust her parents to begin with to be upfront and honest with them, telling them that she had been drinking. It's almost like the way she talks is like she was afraid to tell her mom she was drinking with her friends. So that's one thing that does happen in the adolescent stage of life. Sometimes they're scared to call their parents because they are drinking. They're doing something they shouldn't be doing. So instead of, you know, asking for help, they think, okay, I can do this. I can drive or I can get in the car with a friend of mine who has been drinking. So again, this is reflecting on the adolescent stage of life. But in her mind, you know, she believed since she wasn't wasted and felt fine to drive that everything would be okay. Obviously it wasn't. And, you know, so she hurts. So she gets into a car wreck because she had been drinking and her baby brother, Ben, was hospitalized because of it. So and then another thing is that, like, once you hear Jess's story of what happened and then kind of look back on the movie, you realize that no one is beating Jess up more than she is to herself. She hasn't forgiven herself for what she did. You know, she's withdrawn, depressed, detached. She's introverted and distant. You know, no one really can punish Jess more than Jess is punishing herself. And the parents, like, don't even see this. Like, they don't even see how badly Jess is punishing herself for what she did. So not only are her parents punishing her, she's punishing herself. And in order to move forward, the parents need to forgive Jess. Yes, she messed up big time. Like she made a huge mistake. But with that said, Jess also needs to forgive herself. You know, like in order to move forward, Jess needs to forgive herself for what she did and her parents need to forgive her for what she said. So, but this whole story definitely fits in with like, you know, a teenager in the adolescent stage of life, you know, identity versus role confusion. They're, de they're trying to fit in. They're finding out where they fit in this world, like trying to figure out who they are. So teens tend to be reckless, impulsive, experiment with drugs and alcohol. They take risks. These are typical, normal aspects of adolescence, you know, the adolescent stage of life. Again, I'm not saying what Jess did was okay, but in the end, she made a mistake and she is paying for it, mostly from herself because, again, she hasn't forgiven herself for what she did and she beats herself up over it. And it's very obvious you know, she really does feel bad about what happened and that she hasn't forgiven herself and she's beating herself up for this incident. And again, like I said, in order to move forward, the parents need to forgive Jess. And more importantly, Jess needs to forgive herself. So I hope that all makes sense, that this movie is really sh reflecting on the adolescent stage of life, the idea that teens are reckless, impulsive, they experiment with alcohol. Jess was drinking with her friends. She didn't feel comfortable to tell her mom what she was doing because she was probably afraid she'd get in trouble. So she's like, oh, I'm okay to drive. She gets into this accident. It hospitalizes her brother. You know, her brother could have could have died. She could have died. And her parents haven't forgiven herself. But what her parents don't realize is that Jess hasn't forgiven herself. She's beating herself up over this incident. She is withdrawn and distant because of what she did. And in order for everyone to move forward, to be a family again, her parents need to forgive her and Jess needs to forgive herself. So again, I hope that all makes sense. Okay, so I'm going to move on to the idea of like human beings can be the monsters. Like they are the true monsters. And again, this is a subject I enjoy and I love to talk about because 
you know, human beings can be just as evil, just as horrible as any creature, cryptid, or supernatural being. And in all honesty, humans can be worse because we have a conscience. You know, we know what we're doing. We have a conscience. We have, you know, a sense of right and wrong. You know, ghosts, cryptids, you know, monsters or creatures don't have that. So I think that makes us at times worse. And I think this movie definitely plays on this idea of like, who's the real monster? Human beings are the monsters. And just basically how appalling humans can be. So the name of this movie is exactly what's going on. The ghosts are trying to send a message and a warning. And they are trying to warn the Solomon family of the impending doom. And they don't want what happened to them. You know, the ghosts don't want what happened to them happening to this family. So the beginning of the movie plays out again like a slasher flick, like I said. We see a mother and a young son. She's packing up, trying to leave. She's very scared. The little boy is scared. He hides under the bed. The door swings open and the mother is thrown against the wall, but we don't see what threw her. The boy runs downstairs, runs into her, his sister. She tells him to hide. And we see her dragged across the floor and down into the basement. Again, we don't see who's pulling her. The boy hides in a cupboard, like in the kitchen, like on the floor, like so it's ground level. The door opens up and the boy is attacked. Again, we don't see who's attacking these people. We are led to believe that something paranormal killed the family. So when we see the Solomon family move in and strange things start to happen, again, we're supposed to think back to the beginning and think, oh, this is what happened to this fan family, the previous family. First, it's Ben, the toddler who sees spirits. You know, they make him smile and make him laugh. And he, like, points to them and laughs and follows them around. And the fact that Ben sees ghosts, um, actually, so uh, I'm going to um, go off topic for just a quick second. So the fact that Ben's the first one to see them actually plays on this idea that small children, usually the age of five and under, can see spirits. Um, one, like, uh, one explanation for this is that children under the age of five don't have a concept of fear yet. Therefore, they don't understand that they should be scared of ghosts. Therefore, they do not fear them. Therefore, they can see the ghosts because they don't understand that they should be scared of them. So Ben's the first one to see them. And like I said, this is just something I remember reading about a long time ago, actually, was that children under the age of five have the ability to see spirits because they do not know that they should be fearful of them. Um, so Ben is the first one to see them. And I think that this is what the movie is playing on is the fact that this is something that some people believe. This is a theory of some people that children, you know, little children can see spirits and then they slowly reveal themselves to Jess. And then by the end they are revealed, you know, they reveal themselves completely. So first it starts with Ben, then Jess sees them. And then finally Denise, the mom um, sees them. And when she sees them, we find out what really happened at the beginning of the movie and that the ghosts are actually trying to warn this family of how dangerous their hired hand, John, really is. So Denise finally sees the ghost and she decides she's leaving. Like she's like, nope, we're going. She grabs Ben. She starts packing up stuff and she's bringing it onto the porch, like preparing to leave. And John just got attacked by all those crows and they were pecking at him and stuff. He walks over and just a little bit earlier in the movie, Jess actually finds a picture in this stopwatch she found and it matches a picture that she saw in the feed store so she realizes that john was part of the previous family she goes home to warn them 
Denise is trying to leave because now she's scared because she saw a ghost. And then John like walks over to her. Denise. Oh my God, John. John, where are you going? Where are you going, Mary? Denise. What? John. What is this? Are you leaving me? Denise. I don't. John. Shut up. And he slaps Denise. Been working my ass off every day. It's never good enough for you, is it? Denise. Oh God. John. Do you really think that I could ever let you leave me? And then Denise sees that Ben's crying. She's like, oh, baby. John looks over at um, Ben and says, Michael? Then Denise pushes John off of her. She grabs Ben and then runs into the house and hides in one of the rooms. John follows her. John, open this door. Open this door, Mary. And then Bobby and Jess show up at the house. Jess calls out for her parents. The ghosts show up and, like, start attacking her and Bobby with, like, pitchforks. It looks like pitchforks are being stabbed through the wall. Again, this is the ghost warning them of what's about to happen to them. John shows up, knocks Bobby out. Jess runs down to the basement, um, locks the door. John, he starts kicking on the door. Open the door! And then John actually grabs a pitchfork and goes towards the door. John, Mary, do you think I would let you walk out on this family? Open this door, Lindsay! Open the door. And then John tries to break the door down. And this is the door leading to the basement. Sorry, I should have said that. So um, Denise and Ben are hiding in the basement. Jess goes down, finds them. John grabs the pitchfork and is trying to break down the door. John, you're not leaving me. And then John actually makes it into the basement again where Jess, Denise, and Ben are hiding. John, you've been a bad girl, Lindsay. Come here. Why are you always trying to run away from me, Lindsay? What's the matter with you? Don't you like your family? My family is going to stick together. And then Jess looks at him and goes, we're not your family. And then with that, like John's kicked into this paranormal mud water and killed by the ghost of his deceased family. So his family actually got revenge, which is killing the man that killed them, which was John, who was the father who it's never explained why he went crazy, but he just went crazy and killed his entire family. And then the ghost and the crows are trying to warn the Solomon family that they just hired a murderer. So we really do find out that um, there was never anything supernatural going on during the beginning of the movie. It was all John. He brutally murdered his family, his wife, his daughter, his son. He killed them all. Man was the real monster in this movie. Not the ghosts, not the spirits. It was a human being. And the spirits were actually trying to warn this new family because they were John's deceased family, trying to warn the Solomon family of John and how dangerous he is. You know, the ghosts weren't the monsters. They were actually trying to protect the family and warn the family. It was John, a human being who was the true monster in this movie. So again, I hope that all makes sense that John is the one who's the monster. It's not the ghost. It's not the supernatural. It's not the spirits we should be fearing. It's, it's man. It's the humans. We are the true monsters in this movie and again this is an aspect i do like within movies is when we have to ask the question who is the real monster john brutally murdered his family and then this new family moves in the ghosts are desperately trying to warn them about this impending doom trying to protect this family of john because they hired john um to help around with the um as he says the harvest which is for sunflower seeds and then the ghosts are desperately trying to warn them and say like no like don't you know don't trust this man and then they, we finally realized what had happened at the beginning of the movie, which is John went nuts, killed his family. Now the ghosts are trying to warn the Solomon family 
of John and how dangerous he is because it's not the ghost we should be fearing. It is man. It is John. It is human beings. Human beings are the true monster of this movie. So I, again, I hope that all makes sense. So I'm going to move on to my reviews. And sadly, like I said, this movie doesn't get the love I feel it deserves. I really do feel it's an underrated film, in my opinion. So it was really hard for me to find any positive reviews for it. So I found one slightly positive and then one not so positive. So I'm, I'm going to read one of each. Horrornews.net says, Unforgivably, though, the film pulls its punches. I totally get that it's a relatively high-end production aimed at teenagers and therefore isn't going to be packed full of beheadings, disembowelments, and flayings. But what little horror there is is utterly toothless and bland. It's rather like deciding you're going to tell someone a dirty joke and then censoring all the offensive bits out of your telling it. In other words, pointless. Love Horror says, It's chilling and has its jumpy moments, and it's a decent all-around horror flick. However, it does tail off a little towards the end, as many modern ghost movies do. And then they continue to say, The Messengers doesn't break any grounds or offer anything particularly astonishing, but it's solid. And if you're hard up for a horror movie, it definitely has enough to keep you entertained for an hour or so. So overall, this movie is a dark and chilling ghost story that turns the tables on the viewer. These are not ghosts to fear, but ghosts who are trying to protect, trying to warn a family of the danger headed towards their way. On the surface, it's your typical supernatural horror movie, but underneath, this movie touches on serious and sensitive topics, bringing this to the attention of the viewer. Horror movies never shy away from social commentary, and nor should they. I think all the actors played their parts very well and are very convincing, in my opinion. I truly believe this was a family trying to pick up the pieces of a trauma they endured, trying desperately to keep this family together, trying hard to rebuild all that they lost. And I got to give props to Ben, who had minimal dialogue, but completely made me believe that he could see spirits. He's a little boy, and he did an amazing job making me believe that he was seeing these spirits walking around and that they were making him laugh. He was completely convincing, in my opinion. If you haven't seen this movie, don't read the reviews. Go see it for yourself and decide what you think, keeping in mind that all I talked about. Again, if you peel back the layers of this movie to see what's really below the surface, I think you will really enjoy this movie. So I'm going to wrap it up for today. Thank you again for joining me here on Simple Sarah's Horror Menagerie. Again, I'm your host, Sarah Sin. Thank you for sticking around as I discuss horror history, psychology, and mental health within horror movies. Hope you enjoyed the show. And again, thank you for listening. And I just want to remind everybody that there's a horror movie out there for everyone to enjoy. So thank you.